Thanks, Graham. I need to grab those notes and the phone at some point, I think. Well, that was awesome. Thank you, baby. All right, everybody take a, just a 10-second little shake. Shake the limbs. I need to move this so I don't trip and break Hurley's expensive guitar. Also want to uh, add my happy birthday to you, Adam. Adam, guys, did a phenomenal job on Friday night. How many were there Friday? Oh, man, awesome. Good portion of us. It was such a sweet time with the city and with the, the saints around the city. And Adam, you stepped into that moment so well, man. I'm really proud of you. Love how you, especially in this season, are just stepping in with humility to big moments. And I was thinking the reason you're doing that and doing that well with the joy and ease of your heart is because you've done the small moments all through your life. Um, one of Adam and my first times preaching together, we were in the north coast of Scotland in a little community called Thurzo, and we were asked to share at a youth group, and there were three junior high girls there. <laughs> and it was, it was somewhat anticlimactic, but Adam preached as if there were 30,000 junior high girls in the room. And... I've watched him do it in every setting, small or simple, with three or 30 or 300 and beyond, and just so proud of you, man. Love you. Grateful for you. Grateful for your leadership and your heart and the way that it served a city moment, hey? It was good. It was good. It was very good. Uh, also glad to be here in this space, in Colonial Presbyterian. There is a phenomenal history that is associated with this people who have gone before us uh, it was appropriate for Hurley and James to lead us in some of the, the oldie but goodies songs this morning. Was that Twyla Paris? <laughs> Couldn't believe it. Twyla Paris. I was brought all the way back to like my family room in outside Chicago, fourth grade, waking up on a Sunday morning with Twyla Paris blowing up the speakers. So good. With the hair. Oh, yeah, lots of hair. Lots of hair. Um, we got to see Pete Gregg, he was here, and uh, Pete being with us is always just a reminder of a part of who we are, but also part of what has shaped us, uh, the candor of Pete Gregg, which some of you who were there on Friday night got to see, and I was thinking that Pete is a product of hundreds of other people who have said yes to Jesus along the way, that have put their hands on him and blessed him and encouraged him. He is a disciple of Roger Ellis, who's a friend, a dear friend of Joe Steinke, who's here. And we are in an environment, in a room, where literally right now, all of you who are here are carriers of a grace of God that has been entrusted to you and given to you through countless people in really small and simple and ordinary ways, and sometimes in really extraordinary ways. And we get to draw upon, as a family, the strength and graces and giftings that are present within you. And it happens in settings like this. It happens in, in small moments. I was with um, the Wilsons, Deb Wilson, on Friday night, and she's sharing about a book that she's reading. And her love for history is, the, the word anointing, it part means to rub off. And it's like Deb's love for history is rubbing off on me as she just tells me 30 seconds of what she's learning. And I watched, I sat next to Pam and Dave on Friday night and watched 
Pam take 10 minutes before she responded in coming to the front, weighing the significance of what was called at an altar and not responding just in a, in a moment of like emotional euphoria, but like holding it before Jesus. And that heart anointing is impacting me as I sit next to her and as I watch her come forward. Sat with Joe later that night as Joe does what Joe does, asking thoughtful questions and drawing people to himself and subsequently Jesus, who is a teacher, asking these questions that cause for deep thought, per, for provocative thought. And his anointing is rubbing off on me at 1.30 in the morning on a Friday night over a bonfire. And it's true. It infects me. It impacts me. And you all impact me, and you all impact one another. That's why these gatherings are sacred unto the Lord, and why the home setting all the more, where we get to hear from darn near everyone in those settings. And in my home church, I'm thinking about Abraham Jinn and his lovely tribe of children as he calls out strengths and qualities in people in the room and strengths and qualities in me that challenges and causes me to step up and step forward in a different way. This is the beauty of the body of the Christ. It is extraordinary what happens in in in-between moments in hallways and bathroom passings and around bonfires and in home church and everything in between. And so we own who we are in the grace of God and we offer it. And I'm just struck by seeing people and seeing some like Joe and Pete and the yeses that have gone before them, you know? And their yes makes a way for us to step in easier to things. It's not automatic. Like, I still have to make a choice, but my parents and grandparents who have said yes create like an open pathway for me with a little more ease to say yes to Jesus and the things of the kingdom, yeah? And uh, truthfully, friends, that does come back to Colonial Presbyterian for this reason. Adam and I for years have joked that all roads in Kansas City lead back to Colonial Presbyterian. It is an extraordinary spiritual legacy that is associated with this fellowship, with this people. And uh, I was with a guy for coffee last week who works with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Dave, he's a dear friend of mine. And I said, oh, we're going to Colonial. And I said, you know, Dave, all roads lead back to Colonial. And he goes, mine does. 1974, I get counter Jesus, give my life to Jesus. And I I go to the local pool and I try to share my faith with a girl. And she says, you know, I already love Jesus. So where do you go to church? And he's like, I don't go anywhere. You need to go to Colonial Presbyterian because that is the place where people who are in parachurch go to church. He's like, what the heck's a parachurch? She's like, well, you're with Young Life, right? Or Youth for Christ, I can't remember which. He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah. Well, see, not all, not all churches are as warm to parachurch as Colonial. And man, let that be said of Nava, that we have Exodus Cry and, and Young Life who's here with the Cobbs and all nations and droves and buckets of all nations people because, man, we need you, baby. So Dave's like, well, I guess I got to go to Colonial. So he's coming on a Wednesday night just to find the church so he can go there on a Sunday morning. And he rocks up at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday night, and the parking lot is full with 300 kids. And he comes out of the car, and he's like, what's going on? Was there a meeting? What what happened? There was no meeting. Just 300 high schoolers show up at Colonial parking lot because Jesus is doing stuff there. And he gets out, and 
he meets a bunch of people, and then Bob Leitner comes out and greets him. Some of you know Bob, and Bob takes him around for the next 90 minutes and introduces him to 100 kids. He introduces him to 100 kids. Dave gets grafted in. A couple weeks later, Bob pulls him aside and says, Dave, I see that you're a man after God. I would love to spend time with you and pour my life into you. Could we do that? Dave says, well, that's amazing, Bob. I'm so honored. I, I got to be honest, though. I'm with Young Life on Tuesday night and FCA on Thursday night, and I got football practice in between, and I got a girlfriend. I'm in the band, and somewhere in the midst of that, I got to do homework. I don't, I don't really know when I could see you. Bob's like, well, you have a girlfriend. When do you hang with her? Well, Friday night after the football game, when do you finish your date? Probably around midnight, 12.30. All right, 12.30, midnight, Friday nights, I'll be at Denny's. You come and meet me there. You bring any of your friends, and I'm buying. Man, Bob Lee Leitner, who are you? Ah, oh, made me so happy and so proud and so challenged. Man, it like became a mirror of like my willingness to sacrifice. I was like, Bob, I don't want to go at Friday night at midnight, man. But thank God he did. And now Dave stands with Wycliffe Bible translators 30 years later, chump trumpeting and championing the cause of Jesus in scripture translation all over the earth. Because Bob rocks up to him at midnight on Denny's and spends time with him and buys him the Grand Slam for two bucks. Man, I missed the Grand Slam for two dollars. Oh, mama, grand slam. So I'm grateful. Bob Leitner, Dr. Ted Nissen was the founding pastor here. Amazing, amazing men and women of God. They were a plant out of Midtown. Watch out, you Midtowners. 30 Midtown families, Saucers, Hodges, Schaumber, uh-oh. 30 Midtown families left Midtown and planted in the South in like 70s, 80s because they knew they needed healthy, vibrant, dynamic churches in the South because of what was going to be expanding in the city. You never know, Midtowners. Lewisburg might be next. Schaumbert's. Schaumbert, the cider mill's there. You've been there. Uh, I love those. Man, Adam and I drove past that billboard. It's the best billboard right on Warnell. Mmm, donuts. I want those. Sarah, did you get some? My sister went today. Did you get some donuts? Did you bring it for me? You didn't save a single donut? It's terrible. All right. What? You got one donut? All right, keep it for me. Don't eat it. I want that. Donut. Man, that apple cinnamon donuts. Oh, they are so tasty. All right. Um, I, uh, this is actually all a part of the preach is much as that seems ridiculous. Uh, I was also reflecting on a story this week. Um, a nation was under incredible duress. This is a historical story from many moons ago. And the nation was under threat. They knew that the big country at the time was after them and things were not looking good. And so adding a little creative liberty as one does Pretty much every time anybody preaches, let's be honest. The scouts are sent out, and um, one by one they come back, and they're reporting to the king, and the news is not good. And the first guy's like, oh, man, king, these guys, they're well-organized. Their archers are incredible. 
this is not a good situation. What's your plan? What are you going to do? King's like, man, I don't know. This is, uh, yeah, this is bad. I don't know. Next guy comes in, and he says, well, King, I've seen that the Calvary, these guys are incredible. They're mowing people down. It's bad, and they're coming after us. What's your plan? What are you going to do? Yeah, I don't know. There's that many of them, huh? I don't, I don't have the foggiest. We're in trouble. Third guy comes in. He's like, we're surrounded, king, on every side. This is a disaster. All of our people will die. That's what's going to happen, king. What are you going to do? King's like, man, I don't want that to happen. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't have a plan. So that king, Jehoshaphat, goes out, addresses the people, and he leads them in prayer. And his prayer is, just as I've stated it, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And I don't know about you, but I would love to hear a politician say that right now. I would absolutely love it. Now, it would be like the worst thing to do, probably on a political campaign, because you've got to have a plan. You've got to have an answer. And I love that our kingdom is not wired the same way, and that the king of our kingdom is not holding those same expectations upon you and I, upon leaders and kings and kingdoms, because he's holding it all together, and he's not worried, not in the least bit. But I love that moment of human acknowledgement from Jehoshaphat that he doesn't know what to do. And his eyes are on the Father. And he calls the people to have their eyes on the Father. And I think for a lot of us, and probably some of us in more of a felt way right now, our internal scouts have gone out and they've assessed the situation, or externally the same, And the report back to your soul around your future, around your finances, maybe even around your faith, is dire. And the word coming back to your soul is, this is not good. Your future looks horrible. Your finances are in disarray. Like all of these voices and things and circumstances that so want to crowd you and crush you, to dust, to literally dust. And friends, there was good news for that moment, and Jehoshaphat showed us what to do. It is a starting place. It is not the end because in the grace of God, you go from strength to strength. You go from glory to glory. But the wisdom of God says, stop and acknowledge that you don't know what to do. And it's actually your greatest moment to do that. It is the ultimate laughter in the face of the accuser. To hear all of that, to steady and quiet yourself, and to hear yourself say, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I don't know what to do. I had an impression that there was a few of us in the room that were literally right now considering going back to college maybe secondary, like getting a secondary degree, going back to university. Um, How many of you are considering that? Can I see? Is anybody there? Two, three, four, five. All right. 
Um, and one layer deeper, I had an impression that there was maybe some who had literally prayed coming in or had thrown out a prayer into this week asking, like, God, would you confirm whether I'm to do that? Is anybody there? Like, that kind of prayer has been uttered recently about your discernment around going back to school or not. Okay. Well, I don't know what to do. Huh? Who are you pointing at? I can't see anything. These lights are blinding. That really was you? What's the field, can I ask? Awesome. Okay. Well, bless you. I uh, had just a, as random as this is right now, as as random as it was when I was preparing, and see you, and the Father sees you, and I can't make that decision for you, but let this moment serve your process and bless you into that. So, I, in all of this and everything that's been said already, my aim and intent is for us to embrace and value weakness and limitation in a way that perhaps we don't or we haven't. There's a good, there's pro- there's a good chance we live in the West. There's a good chance we don't value weakness and limitation because everything around you says stronger is better. Like, it is the ultimate applause is how strong that person is, right? And godly strength looks very different than human strength, than external, than fleshly strength that we would applaud. And um, I believe there's a moment for us together here today to embrace, to receive, to allow for a paradigm change, a new framing of weakness and limitation that is for your good, that helps you, that serves you, that blesses you moving forward perhaps in ways you haven't considered before. So we're going to look at a smattering of Scripture. William, could you bring me that bottle of water while we do that? These passages have been my meditation for the last 40 days of our lower and slower. William has taken off all his clothing in the front, in the front row here. Not all of it. I'm sorry, son. Thank you. Ooh. <laughs> oh, boy. That was amazing. All right, so follow along. This is 1 Corinthians one I'm going to read three passages in a row just to immerse us in the Word of God as it pertains to weakness and limitation. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Beautiful. Next one, Derek. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, 
so that Christ my po- Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Beautiful. One more. This is John. These are Jesus' words. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. The Son can do nothing by himself. These same words are picked up in John 15 when he exhorts that apart from me you can do nothing, which means nothing of eternal, lasting, fruitful significance. We, brothers and sisters, are all wonderfully weak in the room. And some of you hate saying that word, weak. You've almost worked your mind muscle to remove it and avoid it. The beauty of this is that the word God himself says that when you are weak, then you are strong. If you question whether or not you are weak, consider the ludicrous nature of the New Testament and everything that is asked of you as a follower of Jesus. Be holy. Forgive every single person right away and don't ever stop doing that. Give to everyone who asks all the time. Pray without ceasing. And maybe if you've done a decent job at those, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. We are all wonderfully weak. And this was the Father's intent in joy in giving us the beloved Son to rescue us from our own humanity and depravity, to fill us with a new nature, to become us, to become one of us, to live the life we couldn't live, to die in our place, to ultimately live in resurrected form in your body. Yes, you are weak, and simultaneously you are strong. Have you ever thought that the most amount of maximum spiritual strength that you could ever live is realized in your place of utter and maximum dependency upon the one who lives inside of you? Oh, it is such good news. The gospel is such good news for those who think we are weak but are strong and for those who think that we are strong but we are weak. Because really, the only issue I have with strength is when you think that you're strong. That's the only time you miss it because ultimately you are strong in him who lives inside of you but you miss the grace of God who opposes the proud when you think that you are strong. And this is the reframing and rewiring that I've been going through for the last 40 days of Lower and Slower, and really the last six months as the Holy Spirit exposes the judgment that I've had on weakness, on myself and on others, and what a refreshing invitation to say, sons and daughters, just embrace who you are and stop trying to be freaking perfect all the time because you won't ever be and you can't ever be. And I designed it that way so that you could need me and rely on me 
and depend on me with all of your being that you would be strong in your weakness. Isn't it amazing that Paul says, when I'm weak, I'm strong? I think I learned it as a kid that when I'm weak, he is strong. Like I thought that was the Bible verse in the back of my head. When I'm weak, he is strong. No, no. When I am weak, I am strong. So let's just take a minute and I just encourage, let's just say that either in inside or out loud once or twice. When I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. Knowing who we're not is powerful. Knowing who we are as sons and daughters is essential. Knowing who we are not, meaning our personal limitations and weaknesses, is powerful. It's actually really helpful. Because it liberates you to stop trying to be or pursue something that you're not. The wonder of the grace of God is that the grace of God... Um, joyfully and lavishly gives you what you don't deserve. It's amazing. It's, it's extraordinary, the grace of God, in its wonderful, simple operation in all of our daily mundane activities. I, uh, one of, maybe one of the most impacting messages I ever heard when I moved to Kansas City was by Mike Bickle, who got saved here at Colonial, via Bob Lay Leitner, the Midnight Denny's guy. Should just be called Midnight Denny's guy. That's a great nickname. And uh, the Bix gave a teaching when I first moved to Kansas City about the difference between Saul and David. And it radically changed my view of God as it pertains to weakness. And he said the difference between Saul and David is that when they messed up, Saul ran away from God to himself in hiding or in consulting other mediums. And when David messed up, he ran to God. And that was so simple and yet so utterly profound for me that I almost missed it. And the reason I almost missed it is because you're not in tune with how many times you actually need to run to him. And how frequently since the garden, the beginning, when Adam and Eve first fall, and what do they do? They immediately run and hide. And that plot line has continued all throughout our God story, where men and women like you and I, who are made in his image, delighted and welcome to his presence, when we flop or fail or mess up, we think that we need to hide and cover that, rather than actually take it and run to him with it. What? comes into your mind when you are in tune with your weakness and failure, or even your sin or your repetitive sin. And if it is not seeing a smiling father, if it is not seeing open-armed dad, if it is not a loud voice that is declaring over you again that you are forgiven, not just so you can hear it, but so that everyone around can hear it, that is the extraordinary nature of the mercy of God. The extraordinary nature of the mercy of God is giving you what you don't deserve. 
and not giving you what you do deserve. I was with a guy, and uh, we were doing some prayer ministry, and I'd been walking with him in some sin stuff that was going on with this dude for years, and I would meet with him regularly, and it was like accountability-esque, you know? And I was getting really tired of the guy failing again and again and again. And this is now a long time ago. No, the guy's not in the room. If one of you are wondering if it's me, so I'm not going to do that. And I really was just wearied. Like, are you freaking kidding me, man? We're years into this. What the heck is happening? And that's what's going on in the back of my mind as I'm meeting with him. What is happening and why are you continuing to do this again and again? Damaging yourself, damaging others. What is going to change this? So as I'm sitting with him, I feel the Holy Spirit say, slap him. And I thought, that's, I cannot, there's no way I can do that. I can't do that. So I get rid of it, and it comes back stronger. Slap him. And I thought, that, there's no way. I go to jail. The church will go under. Everything is like bad. And it comes back strong. Five, seven minutes. David, slap him. It is my kindness that brings him to repentance and partner with me as a good father who brings discipline. I want him to feel something physical to correspond to, the, to really what's going in my heart for him, pulling him towards me. And I was like, this is, I can't do this. I wait, and then finally I convince myself that this is okay. And two, <laughs> Rob Black just <laughs> Tim, I don't know if this is condoned or not, but we're gonna, just let me finish the story here because it changes. So I've now, after five to seven minutes of wrestling with this, have settled that I'm gonna slap this guy. And I'm ready. And I'm like, okay, Lord, you better use this. And man, and two seconds after I commit to it, these words come out of his mouth. Father, I thank you for your mercy. And as strong as I felt it come, I felt it go. And I wept. It, immediately I started weeping because I understood the mercy of God. The mercy of God is God not giving you what you do deserve. Oh, and I sat with him again as he confessed again, as he acknowledged again that he couldn't do it in his own, and he cried out for the mercy of God, and he, the Father, couldn't help himself because he will always run to his children in that place because their weakness is not offensive, but it is actually perfumed to him. Man, the mercy of God just absolutely blew my mind. It still blows my mind. That story is what forever will come into my mind when I hear mercy of God. Father, thank you for your mercy. For all of us who are to one degree or another in tune with our weaknesses or limitations, our shortcomings, our failures, our sins, our repetitive sins, Man, how keen the Father is to draw near again and again and again. And he's just not disappointed. He's just not. Now, I want to acknowledge that there's a category of, like, 
weakness and limitation that are happening in people's lives that I'm not even going near because it's, it's riddled with sickness and all sorts of stuff that I am not going near and nor do I believe or agree with. I'm talking about this 80% of our lives where every single one of us will have the rails fall off, the wheels fall off, where we will be smacked directly in the face with what we know we can't do in our own strength, where all of life goes to you know what in a handbasket. And it is, at times, not all times, an incredible gift to your soul to look at it all in the face and to say, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are going to be on you because I sure heck can't figure out a better way out of this. Have you ever thought that your soul gets bigger as it understands and embraces your limitations, what you're not able to do? That it expands your ability to receive and work with the grace of God? I was actually, over these last 40 days, just writing them down, which was somewhat of like a depressing experience, of like writing all the things that I know I can't do. And uh, that's when I was aware that it's exactly what I need to be doing. Because in doing that, I'm actually like throwing up the sail and saying, man, grace of God, mercy of God, come. The strength of God, come in these places where I thought that I could do something on my own. Yeah? Ooh. 552. I know, man. This is loud again. All right. I want to land this plane and throw this stupid cap away. Don't you get that, William? Um... Psalm 42, if you want to turn there. I want to read this psalm. I want to make two comments, and then I want to lead us into some simple responses. Part of this for me, friends, is how I started this message with an acknowledgement and an honor to all the gifts and graces who are present, the way that I see love weaving its way through the whole family, to speak to and to own and acknowledge our weakness to give compassion to ourselves will in turn make you a person who loves people better. You will be a more compassionate person when you are compassionate with yourself. You will be a far more compassionate and loving person when you acknowledge and are aware of all of those areas of weakness and limitation and the process, the patient, long road process that some of us go through, yeah? And man, are you gonna be a better person at loving. You just are. It's going to bubble up and bubble over. And the next time you're in a situation like I was in, feeling at my physical end of extending grace, it will be there with a full tank, ready to give grace again. Because somehow the Father just never runs out of it. You keep thinking that he is. You keep thinking he's going to run out of grace. And he simply cannot and will not. It is his essence. It is the beauty of his essence. So... I, uh, I want to read Psalm 42, and I want to implore all of us to make this psalm a good friend and to have this psalm in your back pocket when the wheels and if the wheels fall off and if all of your hopefulness around your future or your faith, your finances, your life goes down into the dust, that you would cling to this psalm and the progression of it. 
It says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Why is he thirsty and why is he panting? Because my tears have been my food day and night. We have a psalmist who is in the pits. And his tears have become his food. And therefore, his soul is crying out and searching after the living God, the only one that can satisfy him. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? It's important that you pause and wait and give enough time for your soul to answer. Why are you downcast, my soul? You don't blaze past that question. You sit with it, and it might take days. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. From the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I want to give just a couple of minutes for personal and private and quiet response. Um, I want to invite those that have been far too self-reliant, self-strength has become your mode of operation, to repent, to recognize that that is how you have been living. You take some pride in what you can do, and maybe subtly or unknowingly, you have been dependent upon your own strength. So if that's you, close your eyes and already begin to go there with Jesus. For the others, uh, the, the, the piece I want to tee up, and you can go, of course, where the Holy Spirit wants you to go, but the piece, the piece I want to tee up is just a simple allowing the Holy Spirit to redefine weakness and limitation for you. For as the scriptures have been read, and hopefully the words that I have spoken have complemented the truth of the word, that you would allow a paradigm shift, a reframing of weakness and limitation in your life. So let's wait for a minute and respond personally, and then I'll pray for us. I bless you, Nava family, every son and daughter in this room. I bless you with the presence of Jesus who runs to you when you are at your worst, when you feel at your lowest. I bless all of you who resonate with Psalm 42 that are asking where are you in the midst of this low place. We surround you with the grace and the hope of Jesus. 
we bless you to be steadfast and diligent to remain in that place of waiting and hope and trust. Thank you for my friends in this room. Would you bless us as a church family as you've had us on this nomadic journey waiting on you that we can't do anything unless you lead. Keep us there. Help us as a leadership team to remain there. Help us as a church body to stay on the tripping edge of faith and dependency upon you that if you move, we move as quickly as you move. Help us root that deep in Nava, I pray by your grace. We say yes to our place of need, what we do and what we know we can't do. We give back to you, Jesus. Amen. Let's grab hands and close our gathering praying the Lord's Prayer. A prayer that truly reminds us that we are dependent upon him for our daily bread. Coming down here. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. 